good. Well, uh, we are studying Hebrews chapter 11. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to consider dying grace. By the way, um, what have you mentioned to me? Uh, wanting that quote from Jonathan Edwards, which I sent out this week in the email with the bulletin, but also here in the bulletin, as you might uh, see, we, uh, we have that printed in case you wanted to meditate on that. It, one of these things that takes a good deal of thought and prayer, I think, rightly to appreciate. It becomes us, he wrote, to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeing of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives. Well, that sounds mighty high and holy, but here we come to Hebrews chapter 11 and remind ourselves that uh, the saints find themselves in good company in doing so. From Hebrews chapter 11, just three, three verses, uh, wait, uh, 20, 21, yeah, three verses starting in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Amen? Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, in these few words, these being dead may still speak and may speak to us especially of dying grace, which you gave them, even though they had uh, many times of halting and stumbling in their pilgrimage. Yet you made them strong and brought them safely home at the end. And so we pray that you will likewise continue to perfect your work in us, your servants, for Christ's sake. Amen. We live in a very unusual time in history as regards to death. Death, of course, is inescapable in every age, but until pretty recently, death was a much more present reality in our lives. Uh, Infant mortality was quite high, and women often enough died in childbirth. Common infections and uh, illnesses regularly claimed the lives of both adults and children. And in those days, people often died and their own beds. Um, In-home funerals were not unusual. The doctors would make the rounds to the houses of the dying, and we too would go from house to house to be able to see those who were finishing their days. Nowadays, things are quite different. Uh, Just with the advent of antibiotics, we have greatly extended our lifespans, and we have the institutionalization of medicine and funerals. So that now when people become gravely ill, they are sent away to hospitals. And when they die, they are taken from that place to funeral homes and so forth. And the result is that death is increasingly hidden from our eyes, from our immediate experience. And it's easy for us to forget, at least for a time, its inevitability. The result being that the art of dying well, as they used to call it, ars moriendi, has been replaced with the art of ignoring death. Joel Cho is a hospitalist physician in San Francisco where he's worked for 20 years, and he's often been the only Christian in his group. He's had to, in his position, give countless patients a terminal diagnosis over his years of work, 
that only a handful of them have been Christians, he says, but what a difference that makes. But otherwise, if they're not, his experience in working in what's uh, called, he says, the least Christian metropolis in America is like this, he writes. Death is initially a confusing concept for most terminally ill patients. I haven't seen too many tears as I break the unfortunate news that a patient has a fatal disease. Instead, what's much more common is a look of bewilderment. Though everyone knows that death is inevitable, most don't know what to do with the news of a terminal diagnosis." End quote. And I think that this is a large part of the reason for the panic and, frankly, the craziness that we have seen through the recent pandemic. As all of a sudden, the world was forced to come at least with some measure of face-to-face -face with that king of terrors called death. All our advances cannot free people from what this book of Hebrews calls slavery to the fear of death. When people are confronted with it, 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 it's like they didn't expect it somehow. But what people need is what Christ alone can give, a shepherd to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, an anticipation of resurrection unto everlasting life, a world in which every tear is wiped away, and a hope in the meantime that can never be shaken, though any circumstance in the world you could name comes to us. We have this confidence that nothing but nothing, but even death itself can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you have such a faith that will strengthen and sustain you? Famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death itself? Do you have such a faith? The author of Hebrews gives multiple examples in rapid succession of these who lived and here died in faith, even in these brief words about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, intending in these words to call attention to dying faith and these incidents from each man's life just before he died, which in each case, as these men faced death, none of God's promises were far away. Oh, they were anything but near in fulfillment. Circumstances seemed completely contrary. These men had lived all of their lives hearing about and believing God's promises, but God had yet delivered virtually nothing. That even so, the author says, these all died in faith, focusing on things yet unseen, things to come, believing confidently that God was going to keep his word and would encourage those coming after them in the same. This will be the focus of our evening study, Dying Well. The saintly writer and commentator, Matthew Henry, whom I highly commend to you, wrote this, though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout our whole lives, yet it's especially so when we come to die. Faith has its greatest work to do at last, to help believers to finish well, to die in the Lord, and so to honor him by patience, hope, and joy so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's word and the excellency of his ways. Well, 
you might think easy for him to say, but when Matthew Henry at the age, at the very young age of 52, was on his own deathbed, uh, he, he said, and a friend recorded, you are used to taking note of the sayings of dying men. This is mine, that a life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. Now, there's, that's someone who had faith both to live well and to die well, and that will be the goal of our study. Illustrated here in a few words by three very different men in some ways, who despite some profound failures, especially in Jacob's case, teach us about dying faith and much more than that. They illustrate the promise of God that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So let's read about Abraham, Isaac, and no, sorry, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and see what they can teach us about dying well. First, Isaac, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Um, well, all right, compressing his whole life into these few words. Um, and uh, perhaps you remember, as we just read this a, a few, a few uh, weeks earlier, at this point in his life, Isaac was old and blind. He called for his favorite son, Esau, and told him, son, why don't you bring me back some fresh game and cook it up, and you know the way I like it, and I will bless you. And we read a few weeks ago how, how God had previously told Rebecca when she was pregnant that Jacob and Esau, those two men will be two nations in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, Jacob was the younger. The point is, Isaac was about to bequeath his, his patriarchal blessing upon his favorite older son, Esau. And when Mama overheard that, that Jacob was about to confer the family blessing on the older, she went into action with a plan of her own to secure a blessing for her favorite, Jacob. Now, whether she thought that she was rescuing God's prophetic plan or whether she was just doing something to favor her son, we, we, we can't know for sure, but this we know. She dressed up Jacob in his brother's clothes and sent Mama's stew with him, and, and he got the blessing. Thus deceived, Isaac fulfilled God's prophecy to Rebekah, conferring the Abrahamic blessing then on to Jacob. So at that point, you might justly wonder, um, okay, back to our text. How exactly did Isaac act in faith in such a circumstance, right? He didn't even know what he was doing. He was doing the opposite of what he thought he was doing at the moment. Well, I think that there is no defending him at that point, although we then read. When Isaac realized that he had been deceived, though very angry, he did tell Esau that he had blessed his brother and affirmed, yes, and he shall be blessed. And then, you remember, just before Jacob fled from the face of Esau, his father Isaac charged him not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, like we just read, but said to Jacob, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. 
Now that, I say, was a blessing given in faith. At that time, what could be seen? Jacob didn't even have so much as a wife, let alone a whole assembly of peoples descended from him. Neither Isaac nor Jacob owned a square foot of that promised land except for a burial cave and so forth. Nevertheless, in that covenant blessing, Isaac did demonstrate faith, knowing that God's promises would not fail, even though at that moment all this had gone on and there was no indication that even any of this would be fulfilled. Nothing of the promise could even yet be seen. And you realize, you read this, the whole story behind this verse is the most unflattering. It's not flattering to any of the participants. Esau, a worldly man who despised his spiritual heritage for a bowl of stew. Uh, Rebecca, deliberately deceiving her husband, encouraging her son to lie to him. Jacob, agreeing to go along with such a lie and take advantage of his blind father and cheat his brother. And much more could be said. And you ask, what, what possible encouragement can this be today to me and to my faith, right, from such a story? Well, first, friends, because God knows very well, no matter what circumstances, even like this, that he knows how to strike a straight stroke with a crooked stick, right? He used that whole ugly soap opera to fulfill his good and sovereign purpose, which could not be thwarted. God had chosen Jacob and rejected Esau, and his purpose, according to election, did stand. And Isaac knew full well. And throughout that terrible history, we find, at the end, Isaac's firm faith regarding things unseen. So you see, we may also not have been the godliest people or even the most obedient believers. And all the circumstances around us may be not only unpromising, but apparently flying in the face of all God's mighty purposes and promises in the world. And we get discouraged, and we might have very, very little of what He has promised to us that He will give us in the end, as He's promised so much. We have so little. But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, this dying testimony reminds us God knows what he is doing. And that whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Some of you World Watch subscribers out there, right? We can look at, all this, we can look at this heap of mess and know for certain that God is fulfilling his purposes. When everything stands against him, it is no match for our God. Isaac was a very weak link in this chain, but he was the son of promise nevertheless. And no Ishmael. Jacob was an even weaker link than him, but he was not a godless man like Esau. God was nevertheless maintaining his covenant from generation to generation as he promised. And Isaac could die knowing that even when man is unfaithful, God is faithful and can't deny himself. And we too remember that new covenant promise given to us in the prophet Isaiah. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who's upon you and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore, Isaiah 59. It is still, as always, the children of the promise but that promise stands secure, despite many of your and my shortcomings and failures. 
This mustn't cause us to shrug our shoulders in apathy or sin that grace may abound. It ought to encourage us to be faithful and press on in spite of all of our disappointments and ominous world events and manifest weaknesses in us and that we are begetting children into a wicked world and we say what is going to happen and our own lives may be cut short in the midst of it and they will not nearly be as faithful as they ought to be in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, okay, Isaac says, nevertheless, all that and more could be said in my day, but steadfast and immovable is the Lord's purpose and work and our work is never in vain in the Lord. Press on. Isaac was able to die with a tremendous confidence, not in himself or even in his son, but with his God, he was able to see those things yet unseen, and he passed them along, and that is what we are to do as well. Isaac died in such great confidence. Jacob, secondly, in verse 21, we read, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. All right, uh, this we have not yet read in Genesis. This uh, comes in chapter 48. We'll read it in a few weeks. Jacob and his extended family had migrated from Egypt, uh, sorry, migrated to Egypt to survive that severe famine. And when he was dying, we read, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people and give you this land, uh, this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And he blessed Joseph, we read, and said, okay, Jacob to Joseph, God, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Sorry, that was uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandchildren at that point. And when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim and vice versa, we read it displeased him. And he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head, put it on Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him, them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. End quote. Ephraim and Manasseh were, of course, the sons of the second most powerful man in the world. They had been raised on all the luxuries of Egypt. No doubt they were personal friends with Pharaoh's children, 
Servants would have attended to their every whim and need. You might have expected a grandfather to bless those grandsons saying, may you prosper here in Egypt even as your father has prospered. May you possess great fortune and enjoy the best that the world has to offer. Oh no, he doesn't mention it. That was not the hope that he had for his grandsons at all. That was not his legacy. Instead, he blessed them with the blessing of Abraham. And an Egyptian overhearing these words might have been very confused. You are giving them a double portion of this famine-stricken land of Canaan, even though you yourself don't even own a square foot of it except for a burial cave? And here in Egypt, they have everything that anyone could ever dream of, riches untold. But here you bless them with a piece of dry ground that you don't even own to give away? Exactly. By faith in God's promises, he was giving the boys the true blessing of Abraham, which he knew was far, far better than all the worldly blessings of Egypt. So what can this possibly have to teach us, right? Well, it's a great tragedy that many Christian parents nowadays hope more that their children and grandchildren will succeed materially than that they should succeed spiritually. Parents might be thrilled to hear that one of their kids got accepted into med school or landed a fat contract in a professional sports team, but if they heard that their kids were headed for some mission field in North Africa like Julia or some poor country, they would, might want to talk some sense into them, not to throw their lives away with nothing materially to show for it, right? Uh, now, pollster George Barna puts some numbers to that intuition. He says that uh, in our day, 39% of Christian parents list, excuse me, evangelical Christian parents list getting a good education as a critical outcome for their children that they're committed to facilitating. Helping their children to feel loved was the second most frequently mentioned outcome at 24%. But having a significant faith commitment and an identifiable set of religious beliefs was selected by one out of every five evangelical Christian parents. Establishing appropriate moral values, 4%, count them four, wonder why there's a moral crisis. Barna himself uh, reflects on his research and he writes, now parents can't force or ensure that their kids become followers of Christ. But for that emphasis not even to be on the radar screen of most Christian parents is a significant reason why most Americans never embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior in the previous generation. The fact that most Christian parents overlook this critical responsibility is one of the biggest challenges to the Christian church. The biggest in some countries maybe ours. Believers do not train their children to think or act any differently. All right, can you see the challenge of Jacob's dying faith? Jacob's dying faith teaches us how to leave a spiritual legacy. Uh, ladies, it's Mother's Day. When Charles Spurgeon was asked how he accounted for the tremendous influence that God had given him in the world, he replied, my mother, and the truth of my message. Um, he meant his, his, his mother's spiritual upbringing and especially her prayers. And of course, the power of the word of God. But that's how it came to him. The most important thing that we can give our children and grandchildren is a godly heritage in the love of the Lord. 
By the way, did you know that uh, many of those on the Mayflower came to the New World for the sake of their children? Worried about what that Dutch culture was turning into and how their children may have found their spiritual prospects dimming. As their governor, William Bradford, wrote, uh, they made that risky voyage and endured those terrible hardships, the hunger, the cold, loss of life, quote, in order to preserve to their children a life of the soul. Hmm. Would you mothers and fathers leave all behind and cross an ocean for a very uncertain future in this world for the sake of the life of the souls of your children? I believe that many of you would do that gladly. Here is the challenge. Let this be on our radar. Leave, in any case, a godly legacy. Jacob had a great many failings in this life, and at last his body had grown weak. But his faith now, it seems, was stronger than ever in God's promises. Although all of his descendants were comfortably living in Egypt, far away, he tells them to seek that spiritual homeland and heritage. And when Joseph then at last agrees to bury him in Canaan at the end of his story, he worships God because he trusts in that promise that God will fulfill his great promise and his faith has left a spiritual legacy. Well, third and finally, we come to Joseph. Again, in these few words, we read of this magnificent life that fills the third part, the third section of uh, last third of, of Genesis. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure or exodus of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Okay? Uh, he told his family to bring the bones back to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he made them swear that they would carry his bones with him when they returned. Now, well, this is very interesting. Okay, so we have this huge section of Genesis about the magnificent life of Joseph. Such a great life in so many instances, so much strong faith. You think about uh, you know, how he resisted the seduction of Potiphar's wife and remained true to God while unjustly imprisoned and accused, and how he dealt graciously with his brothers, and how he was a type of Christ and in so many ways. But Hebrews just passes by all that and picks out the one thing about his bones. What? Why? Once again, the main reason it's picked out here is intending to show a man faithful even when God's promises looked the most unlikely of being fulfilled, even when there was nothing to be seen. That is the part of the life that he wants to emphasize. This, again, as I said before, this main theme of this part of Hebrews right? This faith in the, yet the unseen promise. Remember, God had given promises to Abraham more than 200 years before, and his descendants were living in Egypt, not Canaan, very comfortably, I might add. It would still be centuries before Moses led them out. But Joseph, when dying, says, the day's going to come that you are going to be out of here. And when you are out of here, you take my bones with you. And in so doing, he disassociated himself with all of his vaunted success in Egypt as the prime minister of the crown, and he aligned himself with God's people and God's promises yet to be fulfilled. He 
did not want to have a grand tomb in Egypt where future generations of Egyptians could come and pay homage to the man who had saved their country. He didn't want that. He wanted a resting in God's land of promise. And those burial instructions were a strong sermon to his own people that this is not your home, that these are temporary blessings in Egypt, people, and that you need to set your hope fully on what God God had promised in the future, though you can't see any of it now. That is our true home. And this also teaches us about living and dying in a rich land where the temptations of success and comfort choke the word and often much greater temptations attend to us than those in the world who live in poverty, right? A poor man more readily sees his need to trust in the Lord. A rich man can easily trust in his riches and how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, says the Lord. And it's possible with God, but Joseph's words remind us never to set our hearts on the fleeting riches or cares of this age, knowing how empty those riches will seem when we are on our deathbeds. That there, when we bequeath our last words to the coming generation, we can say, what profit, does it gain, what profit is it to gain even the whole world and lose your soul? But how truly rich we are if our hope is in the heavenly country, in God's promises, in our treasure in heaven. The, uh, the Scottish minister of 100 years ago, Alexander White, he said on the day after the death of his little boy, after his little boy died, he said that he felt as if he had one foot here in this world and one foot in heaven because something so precious of his own, you see, was now in heaven that he felt himself there in a real way, even as it were torn between heaven and earth. Now, the reality is, brothers and sisters, everything precious is there. Everything precious is there. And that is where our whole heart and hope must lie. This is what the second most powerful man in the world said to leave a legacy. Americans are a people who live for the moment. We love and expect instant gratification. And the Christian life and the Christian gospel does not offer it. Oh, as, as, as Matthew Henry put it, it is the most pleasant of all lives. Don't get me wrong. But of what he has promised us, there is so little present possession in so many ways. There is a great deal of waiting and wanting and, and tears. Our Lord himself knew. We must keep looking up and looking ahead and looking unto Jesus as the author of Hebrews writes to a suffering people tempted to go back and settle in. Oh, no. You know, some Christians in the ancient days were buried with shoes on, buried with their feet to the east so that they might rise at the resurrection to face the Lord and immediately walk with him. You say, Dave, do you mean that they, if they were buried with their feet to the west, did they think that they wouldn't see the Lord? No. No. No, but by dying in such a way and by giving such instructions in their death, they testified of their full hope, of the legacy in faith that they passed on in their dying moment, their confidence in things unseen. 
Will you bury me with shoes on, facing the east where the Lord would presumably come and, and call us out of the graves, and I'll be ready to go. Because that is my hope. What about you? What, about, what in your speech and behavior, even curiously, betrays a full allegiance to that promised land? What is it that has proven to others that your heart is there and through all this pilgrimage in this world, you are like Jacob, only welcoming a better country from afar? In our day, and especially our comfortable day, it is essential that fathers and mothers bear witness to a soon approaching world that their hearts are longing for a home that they have never seen and will not find whilst we breathe. Christina Rossetti put it this way to her children. She wrote, true, all our life long, we shall be bound to refrain our soul, to keep it low. But what then? For the books we now refrain to read, we shall be one day endowed with wisdom and knowledge. For the music we will not listen to, <clears throat> some of you know what that's like, right? And churn changes the channel. For, for, the, for the music we will not listen to, we shall join in the song of the redeemed. From the pictures from which we turn, we shall gaze unabashed on the beatific vision. From the company we shun, we shall be welcomed into angelic society and the communion of triumphant saints. For the amusements we avoid, we shall keep a supreme jubilee. And for all the pleasures we miss, we shall abide and forevermore abide in the rapture of heaven. What are the best things the world can give people? We turn from those things to something that cannot be compared. That is our hope. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, it is the destination that will determine the meaning of your journey. But since such a wonderful day awaits, because Christ Jesus himself has promised it to us, we have everything to live for, and we can endure anything along the way. And you and I think and must think more often that, that we are on our way home, and Hebrews is written to encourage us in that pilgrimage to lift our hearts amidst present trials, that we have a destination to which we go. Our life is not aimless. Our activity is not pointless. We're going somewhere. And what is more, it is a place of unparalleled beauty and the fullness of life where all the excellent of the earth will meet us and celebrate with triumphant joy. And only when we are prepared to live in such a way, then will Paul's word be true that Christ will be exalted in our body, whether by life or by death. That is our goal. Life was hard for Jacob. Life was hard for Israel. Life was hard for Joseph. It is harder still for the Lord Jesus. It has been hard for all the saints who have gone in such a way. One preacher put it this way, Brethren, don't be hoodwinked out of your salvation by thinking that you found a softer and easier path to heaven than the old path, the king's highway. There is no softer path to heaven than that which still bears the footprints of the man of sorrows. There's no other way to get there than through many tribulations, but it is not the journey. It is the destination that tells the tale. We are on our way home looking unto Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we endure many things, and we with the Lord uh, cry and pray that we will be heard in our many tears. 
We do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor are we discouraged when we are rebuked by him, for we know that the Lord loves whom he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Only we pray that these trials should in no way dim the light of these this precious lessons of the, and the strength of the faith that we too have received and wish to pass on to a generation to come. It is a brief, brief moment that we are here. And we pray that in this vapor of a life that you would have something, something wonderful in us and through us, that there might be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to a thousand generations. We pray that We pray that you would fulfill our every longing and desire only when we step into your presence. And in the meantime, oh, Edwards is right, may our whole life be nothing more.